Welcome to the latest podcast from Greyfriars Church in Reading. Our vision is to see Reading transformed by the love and power of Jesus. You can find out more on our website, greyfriars.org.uk. Enjoy. Everyone. Thank you for participating in that. It would be awkward otherwise. Um, It is truly fantastic to finally be here with you. I've been looking forward to joining this church for uh, quite a while now. Um, And so it's finally uh, a great privilege to be able to speak to you and share God's word uh, with you today. Today we're in our fourth uh, Sunday of our Frontline Sermon Series, uh, where we've been exploring the call to make our 9 to 5 our frontline of the mission field. It's a personal mission field for all of us. Now, if you're like me and you're new or you've just not really been paying attention, uh, about five weeks ago, Sam kicked us off by introducing this idea uh, that the mission field is, is where we are on our kind of day in, day out. But he started by, by depicting uh, Britain no longer as the Christian nation that it once was, but rather that just 6% of us would profess a faith in Jesus. Now, for many of you, this might be a disconcerting statistic. It might be uncomfortable. He, uh, he showed us a picture of, of red dots which signify uh, the, the Christian population in a sea of grey dots. We are thoroughly outnumbered. But his point was not to say, come to church, let's hide away from uh, this big, scary world. But rather, let us go out. Let us build ourselves up here and go out into the world so that, so that we may share that hope uh, and that salvation with all those that we encounter. So today's sermon is a kind of continuation. It's the fourth in the series, and it's titled, Whoever We Are. So let us bow our heads as we pray uh, just for a moment. Father God, we thank you that you've brought us all here today, that you have uh, chosen us, that we are not here by chance, but we are here on purpose for your glory. May you teach us today. May our hearts be sold out for you and may we be built up in order that we go out from this place to be a blessing to all those that we encounter. Amen. So um, please do keep your Bibles open. I, I am someone who tries to stick very close to the text, so I will be referring to it very, very frequently. The text today highlights a rich truth of who we are now that we are adopted by God and part of the family of Christ. Even in this short passage, it tells of the great heights that we see and honour Jesus in and through the work he did on this earth. Verse 4 gives us a, a weighty description of who Jesus is. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Jesus' life and ministry was defined by his identity. He was the servant king. He was king because he was God. We see throughout uh, the Gospels um, examples of his might and power, the miracles he was able to do, and the lives he was able to transform in the name of the Father. And yet we also see throughout the Gospels, and especially in in the passion narratives, that in spite of that great power, He was obedient to the Father, 
and so chose to serve humanity because of his mission to bring hope to the lost and win salvation for the many through his ultimate sacrifice on the cross. He was rejected by those who were meant to welcome him with open arms. And he was even rejected by his closest friends. Peter, the writer of this, uh, this letter that we're in, he is a great example. He rejected Jesus three times after explicitly stating that he would not. Who better to write of the rejection of Christ as well as the mercy of Christ than Peter, who was forgiven for the gravest of transgressions, reinstated as a pillar of the gospel, the rock on which the church at Pentecost uh, grew out of, and a great overseer of the gospel as it spread through the known world. Verses 6, 7, and 8 speak of the prophecies foretold of Jesus' life and purpose on earth. Now, the, the point of these quotations is to show that those who rejected Christ had been proved exactly wrong by God. For God exalted him to the place of greatest prominence. See, in a, in a culture where building lingo was the norm, to be referred to as the cornerstone was the ultimate praise and honour as the rest of the building would be built upon it. It would be depended on the cornerstone. It was the first and most important part of everything. And God called his only son just that. Now the context of verses 6 and 8, uh, they come from the book in Isaiah where the people of God were, at the time were being disobedient and rejecting God's ways. So through the prophet, God lets his intentions known to them, that he will bring about something new, this new stone in Zion, the place of the temple, and that this stone would be rejected by all, but not God. Instead, God will raise it up to be the center point of all things, and be the foundation of the new living temple. The stone would act as a stumbling block to those that would try to reject him because he would defeat death and become the way, the truth, and the life. To those whom God knew would reject him, they're now illuminated by Christ's life, light as their rejection is seen for what it truly is. It is the greatest of shames and tragedies. Now in this first half of the text, it's all about Jesus. It's all about his identity. But then Peter takes it and turns it and draws us into the story. This passage in particular highlights something truly amazing through its structure. Now it's not every day I get excited by the structure of a text, but three years of theological training will do that to you. The interesting and extraordinary thing about the structure of this text is that it's showing a progression. Two things, the progression from Jesus to the new people of God and from the old onto the new. Jesus is venerated because of who he is and whose he is. And in turn, we are now venerated because of who we are and whose we are. Not only that, uh, Peter, uh, the, the context here that is talking to both Jewish people and Gentiles. And that's quite important because uh, to the 
old school uh, Israelites that rejected Christ, they would see this as as the greatest um, of offences, that the Gentiles would be called uh, people of God, and also those that have rejected the old ways and have followed this new way, they will have been ostracised and shamed by their original community. And yet Peter is saying, no, these people, these people are the people of God. Combined, this group the original audience of the letter, are last on the list to inherit the kingdom of God by the people of the day. And yet Peter flips that on its head. By putting their trust in Jesus, it is them that become the people of God, for it is their faith that qualifies them, not their bloodlines, not their community. It is them that will be found in Christ. And as we go through the rest of the passage, we see that it is them that receive the blessing and honour associated with life with Christ. Now, the the subsequent passages, kind of from uh, from nine down, I want to break down into three parts, because I think they speak directly into our front lines uh, topic of whoever we are. The three topics I see are anyone can come to God to receive his mercy. The second is that we are chosen. And third, our identity is what God says we are. So the first, we look at verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's grace overflows as he desires all of creation to be reconciled to him, to be in relationship with him. And it was made possible through Jesus. We see Jesus kind of break down uh, this narrative that there are people on earth not worth God's grace and God's mercy. Instead, he teaches us to have mercy on sinners, to seek out the lowly and the damaged, to raise up the forgotten and the oppressed, and to heal the broken. He teaches us that anyone can receive God's mercy. Now we receive God's mercy through our faith. Through our faith we are made one with Christ. So just as he died and was raised to life, so are we. We are made seen as white as snow because God the Father sees us as he sees Jesus, his child, in whom he is well pleased. There is no sin too big or too bad that can disqualify you from the forgiveness found in Jesus. Our salvation and our identity are not found in the things that we do. We do not earn these things, but rather it is a free gift, a free gift of grace given to us by faith in Christ. No one is disqualified from the love and grace found in Jesus. And there is nothing that you can do to change that. The second thing, we are chosen. What does that mean? It's the first part of of verse 9. We are chosen. What I think it means, we're not just random clumps of atoms floating around in the universe, aimlessly bumping into things in order to give us meaning. We are chosen people. 
We have all had times where we might not be walking closely with God for a variety of reasons. We might have been uh, rebellious. We might have not wanted anything to do with God or the church. And yet everyone sitting here will have come back to the realisation, will have come back to God and say, it is like coming home, where we belong. So you were thought about, you were cared for, you were loved way before you were born. Before anyone knew you existed, God thought, cared and loved you. Before history books were written, before all things, God knew you, God loved you and God chose you. Although anyone can come for forgiveness, it is not by chance that you are here today, worshipping Jesus and glorifying his name. It is not by chance that today when you leave, you go out with the blessing of God Almighty to go and be a blessing to those that you are around. It is on purpose that you are here. And it's because of that that you have purpose. It is on purpose that you are here, and because of that, you have purpose. You are a child of God, and you are chosen. And lastly, identity. Our identity is what God says we are. So what does God say we are in this scripture? The second part of verse 9 says, You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into wonderful light. You are royal priesthood. Who here has come across the terminology priest or priesthood in their Bible in one year? In their Bible reading? Yeah, there we go. There we go. Good, good, good. Brilliant. Well, we all know that the priesthood was a special type of person, a special group of people uh, throughout the Old Testament. They were the ones that connected the people with God, they were the ones that uh, gave sacrifices on behalf of the people. They're very special and they were given responsibility and the privilege to serve God in a very specific way. They were so important because at that point, they were mediators between God and the people. They were essential to all worship and connection towards God. Now, we no longer uh, have to give out sacrifices, thank you. Uh, We no longer have the obligation to be mediators because we have Christ as our high priest who has made the ultimate sacrifice for sins to reconcile us to God. But our royal priesthood is indicative of our call to be the presence of God in the world. We are vessels of the Holy Spirit living in a broken world to bring hope and salvation to all we see. We are the royal priesthood of God. Secondly, God says in his word, you are God's holy nation. Now the majority of the Bible is, uh, is made up of the Old Testament. We hear stories of, of great people of faith, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Ruth, Esther, David, Our Bible reading is chock-a-block with these histories, these accounts of prophecies and and, and the the law. The story of the Israelites, the Jewish nation, is special because of their relationship with the living God. 
They were special because they were made holy because God was holy. And that is who they lived for. Again, it was not just anyone that could be part of this covenantal relationship. But rather, they were called to be his people because he was their God. And Peter here is connecting again uh, the new people of God with that lineage, with that inheritance. And this might seem a small deal to us now. It might be something we've heard a thousand times. But this is a big deal to the people at the time. This is mountain moving stuff. This is stuff that they would be killed for. Now, to be holy is not just suddenly uh, to be perfect and to have a hovering halo above your head. Holiness in its essence is to be set apart for God, to be devoted to him. And there are plenty of changes that one makes when they become a Christian. But the essence is about being sold out for God. Not being tempted by the desires of the flesh or the ways of the world. To live for God is to live as that holy nation. And through living a faithful life, you are made perfect in the eyes of God. And then lastly, in our passage, God says we are his uh, precious possession. God does not hate you. God does not resent you. He does not reject you. He's not annoyed by you. He does not regret you. He does not want to replace you. God has chosen you, you loving, joyous, peace-carrying, kind, good, faithful, generous, joyous people. God sees you as his precious possession. This is who you are. You are blessed because you belong to God. You are never forgotten and you are never forsaken. For you are God's people and he is our God. Those are the three things that God says is our identity. And identity is the crux of what I'm speaking about today. When we are here, it's easy to put on that that righteous suit, as it were, But sometimes we can be tempted to leave it at the door as we leave and blend into the background as we go to our workplace. I know this because identity for me is a huge part of my testimony. I've had periods of my life where I don't know who I am or what I am or why that even matters. But identity does matter because it dictates how we operate, how we perceive ourselves. And ultimately, what we do and say in our interactions with one another. Someone could say, at my core, I'm a good person. Or I want to help people. And that might determine the trajectory of their life. But if we put our faith and trust and our identity in the wrong things, it can only lead to destruction and chaos. That is why Peter makes such a point as this that we are the royal priesthood, that we are a holy nation, and that we are God's precious possession. With Christ at the centre of all that we do, both in this building and outside for the rest of the week, our lives operate in a completely different way because we see things through a different lens. It's a cheesy analogy, but it's like putting your God glasses on. 
So what does it mean for us when we consider our faith on the front lines? In what way does this impact us? I think we can all agree that we think the way we think of ourselves truly matters because it affects everything. Because we see ourselves as God sees us, and we have our God glasses on, we start to see the world in a completely different way. We can see that person struggling at work. We can see the person that's uh, given a vague interest in what you do on a Sunday morning. We see the situation that requires peace and we pray for it. We see those that are struggling to put food on the table and we put money in their hands. And we see the kingdom of God illuminated before us and give praise to him who gives you life. This week, you'll go back to work or home or, or back to the shop and you'll see that God does not just give you an identity because he lives in you, but he desires to work through you. You are the vessel of the Holy Spirit, ambassadors of God Most High. He will work wonders, big and small, in and through everything you do. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. If you need courage, he will give you courage. If you need words, he will give you words. And if you need transformation, he will bring you transformation. The topic for today was uh, whoever we are. And those three things I mentioned earlier fit, in my mind, into those things. Whoever, anyone can come and receive God's mercy. We, we are chosen, are. Our identity is what God says we are. I'm going to invite you to stand as we uh, take time to respond to this. Um, we are gonna, we're going to pray, and I might invite you also, if you're comfortable, to just lay out your hands. As we approach God through the eyes of transformed identity, I invite the band up as well as we come to our time of worship. Father God, I pray that you will continue to reveal to us what it means to be your son and your daughter. What it means to have you live inside of us, to fill us to overflow. Lord God, would you send your spirit on, on us now? Would you transform our minds and our hearts as we conform to the identity we find in your spirit, in your word? And Lord God, may you build us up and send us out from this place to be that blessing in and amongst the lost and the needy. May you give us words, may you give us courage, and may you work miracles, big and small, through our interactions, through our prayers, through all that we do. Some of you might find um, it hard to just receive 
those things that you might not feel like a royal priesthood. You might not feel like a holy nation. You might not feel like a precious possession. I just encourage you now to, during the worship, to, to focus on those things, to come under God's word and that truth that does not change. You are those things. In Jesus' name.